If you're being challenged in all domains, you can do one of two things. You can invest a whole lot of money so that you dominate all domains into the future like we have the last 30 years, but that could become cost prohibitive. The other way you can create overmatch is to stack those domains in decisive space so that the total, where it's employed, is greater than the sum of the parts. We don't think you can effectively fight multi-domain operations without a, a joint all-domain command and control framework that is has an engine driver of artificial intelligence and in, in cloud computing. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this episode features a conversation I got to have with Lieutenant General Eric Wesley. He is the Deputy Commanding General of Army Futures Command, as well as the Director of the Futures and Concept Center. So naturally, we talked a lot about the future of war. But the discussion focused most closely on multi-domain operations. This is, as most listeners will know, the way we currently expect to fight in the future. But I think in part because it is such a new concept, there's a lot of depth to it that hasn't really been explored yet, but that will and should increasingly inform the way we think and talk and write about MDO. And I think this episode is a really great starting point to sort of add some of that greater detail and nuance into the way we conceptualize MDO. Before we get to it, though, as always, just a couple of notes. First, for those listeners who are already subscribed to the MWI podcast, thank you so much. For anyone who hasn't, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or virtually any podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Lieutenant General Eric Wesley. Uh, sir, I want to thank you for making some time and, and sitting down and talking to us. Um, first of all, I guess the big kind of question that I want to ask you to kind of set the stage for the conversation we're going to have is uh, you lead something called the Futures and Concepts Center in the Army. Um, I think some of our listeners will have heard of it, but few probably know really what it does. Can you explain that a little bit? I can. Um, let me start by saying thanks for letting me come on here. MWI does great work, so I'm a big fan, and this is real helpful for us to join and interact with you on this. So, um, Futures and Concepts Center had as its origins back in uh, the, what was formerly known as ARCIC and part of TRADOC. So what FCC does is consistent with what we've done in the past. But most of your listeners know that the Army did a significant reorganization with the establishment of Army Futures Command. Uh, then Chief Staff of the Army, Mark Milley, the Secretary of the Army, uh, Mark Esper, now Chairman and SecDef, um, with great support from the Vice, now the Chief Staff, General McConville, and the Undersecretary, Secretary McCarthy, now the Secretary of the Army. Um, so th there's, this, there's this continuity of thought that, um, that knew that modernization was so important that we needed to create a single command where there would be a single point of entry that takes all the elements of modernization and consolidates it into a unified effort, unified, um, unified command. And so that was the establishment of AFC. So the decision was to take ARCIC and move it underneath AFC to do its traditional role with some ads that I'll tell you about in a minute. So we, um, I now work for General Murray as the commander of AFC. The headquarters is down in Austin, Texas. Yet FCC, formerly ARCIC, remains at Fort Eustis, integrated with TRADOC, which is interestingly a, um, a little bit of serendipity there and helpful for us to stay unified with that command. So what do we do in FCC? Um, there's a series of things. Number one, 
we divine the future operating environment. What, what's the future world going to look like and what are our challenges? And when you say future, how far, what's your time horizon? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, the first point um, we oftentimes make is there is only one future. Institution as complex as the Army and with the resources that you're investing, you're really oriented on an azimuth as opposed to a time in, uh, in space. But I think it's a valid question because we look at a number of different time periods and coalesce or synthesize it. So we look as far out as 2040 for planning purposes on the things we'll talk about today. We look 10 to 15 years out on okay. developing concepts. So we define the future operating environment. And given the challenges of that, we draft a, what we call a concept. The concept gives you a description of the army you want to build that solves the problem of the future operating environment. So future operating environment, the concept, we then develop a strategy to get there and provide that to General Murray and, and General Murray and the, and the senior leadership of the Army publish that. What's the pathway? What steps do you have to take to build an Army that's described in that concept? And then um, we do all of the experimentation that validates or helps us refine the aspects of the Army we describe. I'm glad you, you mentioned that, that there's still um, a relationship with TRADOC because uh, you, the Future and Concept Center, working with Training and Doctrine Command, we talk a lot about, you know, General Perkins used to describe it, I think, very well. He mm -hmm. said, concepts are how we expect to fight in the future, doctrine is how we do fight today. And there's that transition from concept to doctrine. Um, how do FCC and TRADOC work together to make that? We're talking about, we're, and we're going to talk a lot about, I think, multi-domain operations, but that specifically in its current form as a concept, what does the, what does the transition to doctrine look like? Yeah, and it's important that um, General Perkins' description is, you know, frankly, where I get a lot of my lens on this stuff, too. Um, we also say that, that doctrine is that which we do with what we have and the capabilities that we have. Mm -hmm. And you develop doctrine on the azimuth of the concept commensurate with the capabilities that you field. So you, you don't just um, one day say, okay, now we're going to put all of MDO into doctrine. Um, there's not a light switch there. You, you, you publish certain aspects of the doctrine when you have the capabilities or the programs of record, the material development that you produced has come off the assembly line and soldiers have been trained with it. Now we can publish that form of doctrine. So for example, Long-range precision fires is the number one material modernization priority the Army has right now. When, when PRISM comes offline and we have the sensor suite to look at the range PRISM will have to shoot, and we've got it integrated into a command and control um, framework, and the soldiers have been trained on it, that's theoretically when you want to roll off the, the, the fires doctrine that has evolved to the ranges you've got. So you develop doctrine or publish doctrine commensurate with the capabilities that you've produced. And I think that's a, that's a really useful description, one that, uh, frankly, I haven't heard a lot, and I don't think a lot of people have, so I think that'll be helpful for listeners as they start to wrap their heads, since many of them will be, will be conducting operations under this doctrine at some point in the future to kind of um, to come to grips with. Well, yeah, and the other aspect of this is important because um, not knowing that if you're a, you know, a leader in the field right now, you say, well, concepts, that's coming later. I don't need to worry about that. Au contraire, because it's not going to come all of a sudden, it's going to come in pieces. So you want to have your eyeball on, on the horizon. You want to have your eye on, on the azimuth you're headed towards. So as it rolls out, you can anticipate it. So the whole enterprise needs to understand where we're going. Okay, before we kind of move and talk a little bit more specifically about MDO, um, which I think will kind of form the meat of this conversation. I do want to ask kind of a conceptual question. Um, you know, there's the famous uh, saying, I, I, 
probably attributed to a lot of people, but that the best way to predict the future is to make it. To what degree, you know, if, if we think of the United States as a, as a great power, um, certainly not the sole great power any longer, and, or won't be at least in the near future, is, is, it, is what we're trying to do predicting that future, forecasting what the future battle space will look like in 5 to 10 to 15 years, or is it feeling capabilities so that we can shape it to our own advantages? I think it's it's not, it's not an either-or question, okay. right? And, you, and, and I think that's fairly intuitive. It's a little bit of both, um, because the, the aspect that we want to control is that which we want to do to put ourselves in a position so that we can continue to shape the world on behalf of our own mores, our own values, our own ethics, our own national interests. So we want to shape some of that. But yet, we have to recognize that we are but one country, and in, in, uh, although the world is getting smaller, it's um, also moving a lot faster. And so we, we don't control everything, and we have to recognize the world for what it is, which frankly I think is one of the benefits of the most recent national security strategy that was, pump, uh, that was published by this administration and the uh, natural follow-on, the national defense strategy. They're very accurate in describing the world as it is. And we can't put our head in the sand. You, 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 when you develop a concept, um, sometimes the Army has been accused of publishing the concept that we want as opposed to that which we have to sure. do. So it's a, it's a yin and yang. I think there's a little bit of both there. And you know, there have been a lot of comparisons of MDO to airland battle. Um, some of that, I think, is a bit superficial and 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 um, and frankly, not always helpful. However, airland battle did sort of describe um, a force that was superior superior in terms of firepower, in terms of maneuver capabilities, um, the force that won the Gulf War the way that it did. However, what we would soon discover was that adversaries could fight us in a different way and suddenly that firepower and that, those maneuver capabilities we couldn't bring them to bear to it to an adversary fighting along a different lines are there backstops or will there be backstops built into mdo when we say this is the way we want to fight we want to be able to leverage fires across domains um, we want to be able to take advantage of temporary windows of opportunity if an adversary says no we're not going to fight that way and i'm not saying necessarily they're going to adopt the form you know of of, of an iraqi style insurgency or what have you um, but are there are there backstops built into kind of transition and maybe um, um, sort of step back from mdo temporarily to be able to do something else yeah well let's First, be clear that um, there is always going to be a constant dialectic interaction between your adversary and you, and it will never be steady state. You'll, ne you'll never get to a constant, and that's the nature of securing your national security interests and adjusting to their adjustments who adjust to us, and so there's always going to be that dialectic. On the aspect of, of airland battle, that's a great example because Airland Battle gave us 40 years of significant national security backstop and um, gave us the tools to maintain our security framework that enabled our national interests. That's a good long time and that's a pretty good investment. Um, so what, what we need to do now is develop a concept, which we think we have in MDO, that gives us another good period where we can influence the world on our own behalf. Now, not all concepts work out, right? So right before Airline Battle, the lesser known active defense was published. The reason we, we went to Airline Battle or General Starry um, produced Airline Battle is active defense failed. It, it wasn't sufficient to reconcile the problem. 
Um, we've got to be very honest with ourselves, and we have to scrutinize MDO. We have to continually experiment with it and analyze the outputs to make sure it's not active defense. Um, right now, the data says that it's probably um, going to be the concept that drives us into the next 30 or 40 years. Now, to your point, on is, are there backstops? You know, what, what if they change? This is a really important question, John, so I'm glad you asked it. Um, much of the analysis, well, theoretically, all of the analysis that you do is based on what you see right now. Mm -hmm. And um, if I were to be frank, I would say MDO is what we need right now. We need MDO now, and then, and then the natural comeback would be, well, are you shooting behind the duck then? We think not, and here's why. Because we, we reduced it to the least common denominator of what we think will be true into the future. So, for example, does anybody think that over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we will have fewer domains in play that we have to contend with in terms of countering our opponent? Probably not. We, you know, we, we know that we've got several right now, and who knows what, if there is another one when quantum you know, computing comes from. Sure. Another example, does anybody think the, the distance that we have to travel as a nation to influence our two key adversaries is going to get smaller? You know, those oceans aren't going away. So just two examples that, um, that the framework has been built around of constants that we expect to remain for the next you know, couple decades. Okay. You know, we were talking beforehand about um, there's a lot of discussion about MDO. I mean, I, I actually think that it's one of the greatest strengths of, of, of the U.S. military and the U.S. Army in particular um, that we not only allow people at all ranks, leaders at all ranks, um, but encourage them to engage with these things on an intellectual level and, and help to kind of stress test the concept. You said, you mentioned, um, you know, you need to constantly be looking at it and being honest with yourself. And that's more effective when it's done as a total force, yeah. as opposed to within a particular headquarters office, for instance. That being said, um, a lot of that stress testing has, has sort of aimed at poking holes in, in MDO as a concept. Um, you mentioned that some of those, from somebody who, who sits in an office and looks at this, and some of that criticism doesn't seem quite right. Can you give a couple examples of the types of things that you're talking about? You mean the types of exercises we do? Or the no, the types of, the types of assumptions that, um, that are be, sort of maybe circulating out in the general population of people of, in, within the profession of arms um, that... That um, pose challenges. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, so I'll give you a number. Um, this is a, and, and I'll be candid with you, this is a steep hill we're, we're climbing right now. And, and not because it's something we want to do. It's something we believe we have to do until we see a legitimate alternative. But a couple of, a couple of those steep hills we want to climb. Um, we don't think you can effectively fight multi-domain operations without an, a joint all-domain command and control framework that is, has an engine driver of artificial intelligence and, and cloud computing. At what level are we talking? I think, well, at all levels. I okay. think you're going to have a combination of, of operational level cloud computing, but it will also have to be conducted at the edge. So edge computing will be fundamental because, and the reason is we're challenging all domains, so we won't have, always have an uplink. We won't always have connectivity. So much of the targeting, much of the analysis will be done by the last known download of data, and then you do that, that at the edge. So you got to be able to have joint all-domain command and control across echelons that is driven by artificial intelligence, machine learning, cloud computing. So that's, that, we're still um, in the nascent period on that. I'll give you another example. We think that there will be a national debate in the ensuing years 
on the scope or degree to which we forward position forces relative to our current posture. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a physics problem. And so that is a tough one because we are, as a nation, naturally isolationist and we tend to come home. Um, but in order to fight in the environment of hyperactivity and increased lethality in uh, where all domains are in play and can very rapidly change course of human behavior, if you have to rely on a pure mobilization effort, your risk is that you will lose the first fight. And one, you see a lot of narrative out there, he who loses the first fight um, could likely lose the war. So you gotta, you gotta get into that first fight. And so we think forward presence is an issue we're gonna, we're gonna have to come to grips with. Now, not on the scope of maybe the past, but certainly something maybe more than we have now. Uh, do you envision something, so we're currently in I think about 140 countries we have troops you know, permanently or semi-permanently stationed in. Um, you envision that maybe looking a little bit different, but um, being a little bit more strategic in terms of where we place them for access to theaters that we expect are going to be likely theaters. Yeah, we talk about, call it calibrated force posture. And, and calibrated force posture is the answer to um, the chairman's dynamic force employment. And so it's going to be constantly adjusted based on the threats as we perceive them. But but we do think that, um, given the national defense strategy, national security strategy, that the primary pacing threats we have to be oriented on are those threats in both Europe and Indo-PACOM, Russia and China, respectively. And, and those, are, those are natural adversaries that have the capacity to challenge our national security framework. So it would be natural that we would be oriented on those. So that's the, you know, the, the 140 countries, I think, is a, is a great point. You know, we put a lot of tempo on our, on our maneuver forces, and I think leaders will wrestle with prioritizing that against whether a pacing threat or an interest. And, and that, that, that's kind of the debate, I think, that will come soon. Are there any other things about MDO that you, again, from your perspective, um, that, you, that you would like, uh, especially leaders within the Army uh, and, and across the Joint Force, since we're talking about multiple domains, uh, that they were focusing on a little bit more? You mean those things that they should focus on? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, first of all, I like to assure, particularly those at the tactical level, you know, I speak to audiences sometimes, and, and I'll say, you know, they'll say, what, what, what's different for the company commander? What's different for the battalion commander? And typically what I'll say is, frankly, not much changes at the tactical level with, with two potential exceptions. Um, the first is you'll still have to shoot, move, and communicate. You still have to fix and maneuver. But for that battalion or brigade commander, one distinction will be he's, he still has to think in all domains. We, we, we talk about um, think, access, and employ the domains to enable his fight. So that means those leaders, although they still will fight traditionally the way a maneuver battalion commander would, seeing the opportunity for the other domains and how they would be integrated, has, he has to have a keen eye towards what that might look like so we can enable that. The second thing that I think we are not um, sufficiently equipped in right now, although, although we're pretty proud of ourselves and how we employ mission command, we think in this future uh, environment, we will have to employ mission command on a scale this generation has never seen. And, and we probably give ourselves too much credit. We've got pretty good doctrine on mission command. Mm -hmm. But training soldiers and leaders to be able to have the wherewithal, confidence, audacity to make decisions out of contact because they see an opportunity that might be contrary to what they were told to do but better achieves the intent. 
that that's something that we've got to train leaders to do. And then having the ethical foundation to be able to employ those decisions absent an order or absent guidance. You mentioned we've got a pretty robust uh, mission command doctrine. So if, if there's sort of a change or, or um, an acceleration of that kind of empowerment of, of, of junior leaders to conduct, um, well, to lead, uh, is that a cultural shift? And if so, how do we ch- how do we make that change? I think it's a massive cultural shift. And, and you know, some may disagree with me on this, but others have. And, um, I think that, like I said a minute ago, we, give our, we pat ourselves on the back on mission command, but we are not doing it on the scale that we must. Someone asked me, I was in London once, and I talked about this, and they said, do you think we can make that shift? And, and my sense is it's either going to take a generation or a national crisis, some national um, problem that forces us into it. But it's going to take work, and leaders have to uh, probably model it in, in many ways. One thing that um, I think is we struggle with is we, in the doctrine, it talks a lot about for mission command there must be trust. But there's another word that is the, the, the opposite of that or, or the, 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 the partner um, value that goes along with that, and that's risk. We don't talk enough about risk. Trust to be true, to be sure, but you really, if you think about trust, no one ever trusts without being willing to take risk because if they're not taking risk, it's not trust, it's certitude, it's certainty. So, so if you're trusting, the, the leader has to be able to be willing to take risk themselves. And that's what we could probably do better at. Now, to be fair, one of the reasons we've gotten ourselves into this is because of the ubiquitous, redundant communications that exist. You say, why do we not good at mission command? One reason could be because there is always um, uh, a view that whatever I'm doing is by default approved because there's multiple lines of communication. The, the commander could always pull me back because he sees me on Blue Force Tracker. He sees me talking on Merc Chat. I'm sure. talking to him on the radio. So he could always stop me, right? Likewise, the commander is very willing to let the subordinate commander do. If he's watching him on, he could always stop him. So yeah, I'll let him go. But is that true mission command? It's that decision outside of contact when you see an opportunity to do that which you were told not to do but yet it achieves the intent better. Now, now you're in a mission command. I want to ask one more kind of follow-up question on that because I think it's a fascinating topic um, before we circle back to uh, MDO a little bit more. But we've published a couple of articles at MWI about that, this sort of culture of risk. Um, they always use the PT belt as the example. And in fact, we published an article recently uh, by one of my colleagues at MWI um, called Gangs of Baghdad, which was about the Sons of Iraq uh, program and um, how in Baghdad specifically, it wasn't always what it looked like in Ambar province with tribes rising up against, you know, the, the oppressive yoke of, of al-Qaeda, his presence, um, that in many cases you were working with criminal or semi-criminal organizations. And, uh, and the photo that we ran with it had a Sons of Iraq guy, not in uniform or anything, but he had a PT belt because the Americans were coming by to check, and that was something that we required right. for safety purposes. Um, is that we are, you know, it's a any military organization is, is unique in that, you know, we're here in the Pentagon right now. You walk around the Pentagon, you're in uniform, and you know exactly 
where you stack up. Um, everybody wears a rank on their uh, on their uniforms. Um, that's sort of unique, and I think contributes to the um, the sense of sort of risk aversion because we have a natural and necessary deference to the hierarchy and the chain of command. Um, it's a scary thing sometimes to take a, a junior leader, say a company commander, and have him go against his battalion commander's directives and do something different, even if he knows it to be right. Um, how do we change that specifically? That the sort of um, the risk aversion uh, in that sense. Yeah, so how do you train some, how do you um, enable someone to do that which is not, would not be his bent? And the answer is to train them. So, so what, and, you know, just a very simple example, if, if you're a brigade commander and you're training company commanders, my sense is you're creating, you, you got to create training lanes where the company commander is forced in order to achieve the commander's intent to do that which he was told not to do. Imagine designing a training lane where you're given certain objectives and an intent, and he finds that he can achieve the intent if he does what's in the specified uh, or implied task. And he's got to make a decision to do something different than that which he was told to do to achieve it. If you can create a lane that puts him in that dilemma, then, then you've got the right framework. Then, if, he, if the, the guy who, or gal who does what he was told to do and fails the mission, then we need to go back, you know, maybe behind the woodshed, maybe do some counseling, maybe do it, be pretty tough AAR. That guy who, or gal who does that which he was told not to do but achieves the intent, then you say, okay, that's the way you, you, you conduct this mission. That was the right thing to do, and you pat them on the back. And the third category is the guy that gets to that point and he says, you know what, I can't achieve the intent, i got to do something different, does something different and fails, and you still... Um, pat them on the back. They tried something different because what they were told to do would have failed, so they tried something different. That's still a behavior to encourage. So short answer, sorry for the long response, but is to train it. Yeah. And 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 I suspect train not only those company commanders, but also the brigade commanders, because that's a difficult thing too for I think the leader. Oh yeah, at every level, I think. I just, that was a small isolated example, but we have to do it at every level. We have to model it. And we probably, um, even my peers, we, we need to hold ourselves accountable for the degree to which we've got our finger on the Blue Force tracker, on the radio hand sure. mic, on the merch chat. Sure. Um, another okay. thing, another point is, you know, I, I think you have to go back to the late 19th century to study military art that replicates the environment to the degree we need to, um, because you know they were making decisions outside of comms mm -hmm. in that environment, and you know you get in the 20th century, and now we have communications. You have to go back to the late 19th century to, I think, really study decision making by leaders that were in this environment. That's a that's a really good point that uh, I don't think I've, I've I've actually heard made before is that you know the telegraph and and radios yeah. kind of changed things, but if you look before that, there are some pretty useful uh, case studies that maybe we should be looking at. Sure, I think so. All right, I want to circle back to MDO and ask uh, a couple specific questions. First, if we are correct, and MDO is how the next war would be fought, and our adversaries also fight according to that, what's our biggest strength vis-a-vis uh, -vis those adversaries? Oh, well, see, this is, this is a good question, because MDO is to our strength, and why do I say that? Um, the reason, one of the aspects of MDO that's important and is part of the namesake is, uh, and what makes it dis distinct from airland battle, is to create overmatch, what you do is you, you have one of two options 
if you're being challenged in all domains, you can do one of two things. You can invest a whole lot of money so that you dominate all domains into the future like we have the last 30 years. But that could become cost prohibitive. You're the best at cyber, best at space, best at – that cost prohibitive, right? The other way you can create overmatch is to stack those domains in decisive space so that the total – where it's employed is greater than the sum of the parts, or you, you're forcing them to look in two directions. And, and so now the beauty of that is that's what we do really well. That's what the American arm, we know how to do combined arms maneuver. And so this is just, uh, you know, at the collegiate level, this is a much higher PhD level work is now how do you integrate not just two domains or three, now you got to integrate them all for effect. But, but that's in our nature. That's in our, that is in our DNA. So if, if there is something that the American army, by nature, can dominate against peer adversaries, it's the idea of integration and creating synergy of these very different domains to achieve overmatch. So if that's our greatest strength within a multi-domain environment uh, is that it just plays to our strengths, do we have any weaknesses that we need to work on? Well, yeah, I, I think we do. And the one I talk about most is the idea of competition. And this is a, this is a, a cultural thing, largely. Um, the American way of war, the American DNA, the American ethic, not unlike other Western uh, democracies. Um, I always say, because of our original Judeo-Christian ethic, embedded in our DNA is this view of ourselves that we're not a war-fighting people. In fact, we think that the threshold to go to war is very high, and typically, even though we might not state it, the, we have to almost uh, vilify the opponent in order to mobilize the American people. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that important? That's, that's important because we think peace is the norm, War is the exception, and only when evil raises its head do we mobilize against it, and then once the war is over, we go back to the norm. I lay all that out because that's not the way our peer adversaries look at it. They see, they see conflict on a continuum that's constant. Both the Russians and the Chinese do that, which then allows them to see an Achilles heel that we manifest sometimes. That is, we are less willing to engage aggressively in the competition space left of conflict, and they are perfectly willing to achieve their objectives, strategic and operational objectives, left of conflict. You hear of um, uh, General uh, Garisimov's doctrine, when mm -hmm. you know, escalate to de-escalate. And all of that is you push the envelope just high enough where you think you're going to hit that threshold, back it off a little bit, and then we get a little time later, you crank it back up again, so you slowly see this encroachment. Now, if we don't solve the competition space, if we don't get in there, what we'll see is a steady, incremental whittling down of the influence that the United States has around the world on behalf of our values and norms. So I always tell people, even if you don't think you're going to go to war with China or Russia in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we've got to reconcile some of these problems because we'll see our influence um, incrementally harmed if we don't reconcile that. So I think it's this idea of aggressively participating in the competition space. So that's that's an interesting question because, or it raises an interesting question because I, I think you're right. Uh, you, you you made some interesting points about um, culturally uh, about kind of the American identity and and when we talk about left of conflict, we tend to think of that in terms of the other three instruments of national power: diplomatic, informational, economic. You know, our economic might we can use um, uh, diplomatic efforts. So this is a State Department thing, maybe a Treasury thing. Um, 
what is the military's role in competition? What does it look like practically? Yeah, so you, you played right into my hand, John. That's perfect. <laughs> because, you know, we, we do talk about the instruments of, of, um, of national power, and we talk about the dime. And left of conflict, that M is, is small. It's not a capital letter, right? Because we think that in case of war, break glass. Um, all of our, our constitution, our laws, our policies, our behaviors, are all um, see the uniform as something you only use in an mm -hmm. extreme case. Heck, we've got a Title X laws. Russia doesn't have anything called Title X. Yeah. China doesn't have anything called Title X. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with, the, with that cult, those cultural norms, but they exist. So we think, and, and the reason we published MDO as we did, in fact, a lot of people counseled us, you know, you shouldn't include competition in the concept because traditionally, Warfighting concepts start at LD. They start at you know phase three at kinetic ops. We believe that the two are intimately linked. They're tied. They're in, and you can't separate the two. So we published it. So, but what it suggests is that the military does have a role left of conflict, and that's a cultural thing that we're going to have to get over. And I can we can talk about the details. I think you're asking me about that, but. The first step is to acknowledge that we have to get the military left of conflict in order to enable, one, deterrence, and two, if deterrence fails, the ability to very rapidly transition to defeat a fait accompli attack. Um, so what, what are some of those things that the uniformed military would be doing left of conflict? First of all, I would stipulate that the State Department probably has lead. But an interagency effort in those theaters of war has to be um, considered, we think, in the future. A couple of things that the military would do. The first is we would have a role in countering the unconventional warfare and information warfare on a daily basis with continuity across a theater. That's pretty huge. You know, I oftentimes use the example um, in 1992, the, the, the election, the Clinton campaign uh, made famous the war room. Mm -hmm. And what the war room simply was, was they would see the news of the day and they'd counter it that day, immediately get a counter out there. We have to have operational headquarters in both theaters that are that attuned to, to things that are coming out in tweets, things that are coming out in social media, things that are coming out in the news every single day so that we can counter those because ultimately what those nations are doing, particularly Russia, is trying to mobilize people. And if we're not countering it, what we do is we steadily get behind on what is ensuing. Um, so countering unconventional warfare, information warfare. The second thing the military does in the competition space is operational prep of the environment. It's a little bit different from NDO the way it was in airline battle. In airline battle, you could use a constellation of satellites, kind of get an understanding of where they garrisoned their army, um, understand their order of battle, and we could pretty much frame our order of battle against it. In the environment that we're going into, we're going after their, their anti-axis area denial capabilities, their integrated air defense. And so those aren't necessarily formations and echelons. Those are nodes and systems. So how do you identify, you can't take a satellite and find that radar. What, what you can do is you can stimulate that radar so that it lights up, so that you can see it, so that you can target it, and then create a continually updating target list. So Stimulate it how? Oh, there's any number of ways you can stimulate. You can do it, do it with a flyover. You can um, do it with reconnaissance. You can do it with cyber. You can do it with, through space. Any number of ways that you could cause that radar to light up. Now you know where it is. And, you, and then you start to get a pattern of where they are. And, and so that allows you a target list. Now just that activity alone creates 
expands the competition space. It says, I'm here. It says, I'm watching. And now what you're doing is you're starting to create a deterrent effect. If deterrence fails, you've got a target list that you can turn very rapidly to do what? To force a, a, a peer competitor or a peer adversary to maybe let's rethink this. Do I really want to carry out this, this attack or, or do I want to off-ramp? Both the competition activities or the resultant effects of that operational prep of the environment, that is the ability to attack key nodes very quickly to bring down that A2AD, mm -hmm. that becomes a deterrent effect because it gives you another option to off-ramp rather than mobilizing for a protracted sure. conflict. So I want to ask, I think, kind of one final question. Um, you know, it's been... Uh, one of the other, I won't say criticisms, but observations of MDO is that it's just sort of super jointness. Uh, we already have a pretty good joint force and that this is just kind of jointness on steroids. Um, at the same time, there was, I think, a perception that this was an Army initiative. They got the Marines to come along. The Air Force and Navy kind of stood on the sidelines for a while. I think that's sort of gone away in conversations certainly that I've had with people in, in, from the Navy and Air Force perspective that they're on board with this. Um, to what extent, though, do the cultural differences between the services come into play. Um, you know, this notion that each service has its unique culture, which is really important and makes them sure. effective in their domain, but that sometimes makes that coordination um, across domains, uh, joint coordination, um, maybe difficult. Is that is that something that we're going to have to address if we really want to implement this to maximum effectiveness? Yeah, I think it's real and legitimate. And the essence of each service makes it as good as it is. Um, I also agree with you, we've got a great joint force. The question, though, is whether that great joint force is sufficient for where the, the world is going. And, and we would argue it's insufficient as it is right now, and we, and we must change. And I think the other services are would agree with that. In fact, the Air Force now is saying the single joint program that we have to prioritize in order to be effective in the future is joint all-domain command and control, which is going to require the services to come together. So, so what are we, are we going to do to solve that? You can't fight MDO if it's not purple, if it's not joint. So that, you know, our, our SecDef, um, Secretary Esper, our chairman, General Milley, have both come out and said, we will have a joint concept by the end of uh, 2020. That's a helpful forcing mechanism or forcing function to force the services together. Because it's fine if the Army publishes a concept, and the Marines do, and the Air Force, and Navy does, but, but individual concepts federated in the future won't work. That might have worked in the past when we fought against non-peer adversaries, um, but it's, it's right now it would be too brittle merely to federate. So this idea of coming up with a joint concept is important. The second thing I point out, John, that I think is a, a positive um, behavior that we're seeing, and I set it up by looking in the past, if you go back to airland battle, the origins of airland battle find themselves uh, with a collaboration between the Air Force and the Army. Uh, General Creech was a tactical air command commander. General Welch was a chief staff of the Air Force. General Starry was the TRADOC commander. And they, and they worked on this thing called the 31 Initiatives that I'm sure your, your listeners have heard about. Mm -hmm. And it was the 31 Initiatives, the collaboration between the Air Force and the Army, that resulted in airland battle. But what's most important is ask yourself what caused the 31 Initiatives. And the 31 Initiatives came from a recognition that the Soviet Union, with its numbers, um, put us in a position that we couldn't solve this problem without being able to collaborate. And what resulted was the idea of defeat the second echelon simultaneous to the first to solve that number problem. Well, now we're in the same place now. What you're seeing is the services coming together 
and recognizing we got a little bit of a problem here because of this A2, AD, IAS competition thing. And so we got to solve the problem. And I joke when I speak publicly on this, I, I, I always joke about the fact that I've seen more admirals in the last six months than I did in the first 30 years of my career. Why? Because we recognize it with, with a common understanding the, the challenges we're facing that we have to solve into the future. Well, uh, final thing, I guess, you know, we have a we have a pretty broad and diverse listenership. Um, it skews Army, but there's, you know, listeners from, from all the services and, and, and beyond, really. But if you're speaking specifically to the, the soldiers uh, that are listening to this, uh, is there any final sort of point that you'd want to, within MDO or talking about futures, that you'd like to make to them? I think I would tell them two things. One is that... Um, from a distance, it might look like uh, MDO is, is a bit complex, but what I'm encouraged by is it, it's their generation that has demonstrated that they've got the wherewithal, they've got the natural language associated with integrating uh, very complex digital domains together to create something. Um, their, their generation is good at this. And so it's a language that they pick up, and I think they will have the ability to, with the most agility, integrate into the force as we go forward. The second point I'll make is, um, and this is a more sobering, I probably should have flipped these, but this is a more sobering point. You know, we've got a long history, we look at American history, of, of what we do in the interwar years and the degree to which we're successful adjusting to the new security environment, new operational environment. Well, we've we think we got a pretty good look on what the future operating environment is going to look like. And it's their generation that will have to um, demonstrate that we can do the right things in the interwar years, not unlike we did in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and, and the abdication of that could be very costly. So we're at a juncture. But the exciting thing is the, the young soldiers are the ones that are going to bring this multi-domain operations or whatever the subsequent concept is into fruition in order to enable the United States of America to sustain our ability to shape the world on behalf of our own ethics. And, and, and that's a great charge to have as a generation. Well, sir, thank you very much. We, you know, um, I've been kind of in and around the Army for since 2006. Um, I've never seen uh, so much talk about concepts and doctrine as I do now. MDO is clearly an important thing um, and it's important that I think people start to wrap their head around what it looks like at this stage and what it's look, likely to look like so they can contribute to um, refining it and, and, and implementing it in the future. So I really appreciate you taking some time to talk. Well, let me comment on that if I could. You know, we, the reason we didn't hear a lot about concepts over the last 30 years, I tell people, is because we had the best army in the world. Remember, concepts are intended to change armies because of a problem that you face. So for the last 30 years, our, entire, our generation hasn't had to work the muscle memory associated with modernizing an army. But it's important to go back to the 1970s and 80s and study how did we do this last time? And mm -hmm. it was through concept development. And so um, I think it's good that, and, and I guess that's another thing I would share with your listeners, we've got to get into that because, again, we're the generation that will change this thing. Um, the good news is this, that everything is lined up right now. We've got all of the, um, the framework set to be able to do what we are charged to do for the American people. We've identified who are pacing threats are and what they are doing. We have a concept the Chief Staff of the Army signed last year. We have a modernization strategy that's taking us forward. We've got an Army Futures Command that is that is equipped, ready, and, and to develop our modernization priorities. And we have uh, now some increase in resources 
to get after that. So, so all the stars are lined up for this generation to take a very hard problem and, and solve it. And it's just right now going to take the, the, the will of our enterprise to continue to press forward. Great, sir. Well, on that note, I think we will wrap up. Thank you again so much. Thank I really you, appreciate it. Great to be here. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're releasing every day. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.